I hear a lot about innovation in the news. I hear a lot about infrastructure investment, and I'm not hearing a lot on safety. And we're here to fill that void. I will be as vocal as I can be about it because I do think there is this misperception of partial automation means it can drive itself and I can just sit there. And I will have conversations with state transportation officials and they think that. If they think that, the normal consumer, I don't know how that couldn't be confusing. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor here at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, the former holder of the Cannonball Run record, and the Director of Special Operations for Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show and especially this episode. I'm so glad to be here welcoming our guest, the new chair of the NTSB and an avid motorcyclist, Jennifer Hamdi. Welcome, Jennifer. Well, I'm an avid cyclist, but I do have my motorcycle license, (laughs) but I'm an avid cyclist. But thank you very much. Also a runner. Um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with all of you and um, appreciate you inviting me. And you're also a pilot, is that correct? No, um, I, I, I have, I went to ground school and I took about uh, five lessons and have my student pilot license, but I don't have my full pilot's license. It's, it's a, uh, you know, to get, to get your pilot's license, you really have to take the time to fly you know, probably three to five days a week and really stay up on, uh, on, on flying overall. And that's very, very difficult to do in my current job. I can't do anything really uh, three to five times a week. So I I can tell you it's hard enough uh, to get in my running, biking and swimming. I could not actually uh, fly three to five times a a week. that would be difficult. It sounds like you're um, actually a triathlete if you're saying running, biking, and swimming. Yeah, I am. I'm actually uh, training for a half Ironman in October. So. Wow, awesome. that's incredible. So, so I, I've been learning recently that like people really don't understand how like cars and transportation safety is sort of investigated and regulated in this country. And, you know, we have these acronyms that people can't keep them all straight. Maybe I thought we could start by just, if you could just explain, like, what is the NTSB, this organization that you're chairing? Uh, what do you do? Um, and sort of how does it maybe relate to the rest of the, the sort of safety system for, for transportation in this country? Yeah, Ed, I think that's a great question because there is a lot of confusion about what we can and cannot do and who we are compared to maybe NHTSA and some of the other agencies within DOT. So the NTSB, our our mission is to investigate every civil aviation accident in the United States and significant crashes or events and other modes of transportation. So we deal with all modes of transportation. It's Uh, highways and transit, rail pipelines and hazardous materials, so pipeline ruptures, oil and gas pipeline ruptures is also us. And um, we have marine safety and, of course, aviation safety, and we also have commercial space. And so uh, what we do is we investigate and we develop a uh, final investigative report that contains findings uh, the analysis and factual information and also uh, a probable cause or probable causes of the event and recommendations. They're not mandates. They are safety recommendations. So recommendations uh, for improving safety to prevent another crash or rupture or collision from occurring again. That is our mandate, to prevent it from occurring again. Once we issue those safety recommendations, we have dialogue with the recipients of our safety recommendations to try to move them towards implementing them. 
but we can't mandate that they implement them. Congress can and has in the past, and certainly the agencies have authority to do that, but we can't mandate that they take some sort of action. That is up to them. We do all we can uh, to try to push them towards implementing, but you know, a lot of I see a lot of tweets about when is NTSB going to take more action? We need you to do more. I, we've literally done all we can do other than continuing to talk about it and continuing to push. But beyond that, it's really up to the agencies or if Cong- often Congress does have to step in. How, um, when you talk about all that you can do specifically, like pushing action, what kind of strategies do you think you're going to use now to be as compelling as possible? Um, because there, there is a lot that the NTSB has has talked about where we would like, I think, as members of the Autonomous Council, like to see some action taken. Um, and I'm wondering if you have some strategies that you want to share with us, like what you're going to be doing in the next year or so. Well, as uh, anybody at NTSB or outside NTSB would tell you who knows me, I'm very active. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I plan to be very front and center on safety, whether it's, you know, whether it's auto safety or any other safety issue. And so that could be in the media, that could be uh, in writing. That could be at events or site visits or, you know, uh, working with families that uh, uh, lost loved ones in a crash, which I'm currently doing in several areas. There are a lot of ways uh, to try to push safety issues forward, but that's also uh, some of my efforts with DOT. It's important that we have an ongoing dialogue with DOT at all levels to work with them, that they see us hopefully as a partner to try to improve safety. But it's, you know, there are also times where where I've been very outspoken in my criticism of lack of action. And so I'm not afraid to do that when warranted. Um, But if we can do, if we can push them and others in a way that in, in a cooperative way, I think that's important too. I know Alex is absolutely chomping on the bit to to dive into some of the substance here, and and I think longtime listeners maybe understand a little bit of the the context of of sort of the main stuff that we want to discuss here. But I just wanted to also to sort of set the context for all of this. Um, it's my perception, and and maybe you could confirm or deny this that like NTSB doesn't really get into car related issues, like like everyday people, consumers driving cars that they've bought and owned, that's, you, you don't, that's not the main focus for you all. For the most part, it's mostly, it seems to me, uh, you know, aircraft crashes, obviously, but like sort of, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, so maybe could you help us understand, is, is it kind of rare for NTSB to have been, um, so, and, and just, I'll just say it, like to have investigated multiple Tesla crashes where autopilot was involved, to get that involved in, in an issue involving private individuals and the cars that they personally own. Is it, is that a rare move? And if so, sort of why, why are you getting into that? Why, why the focus on that? Well, I, first, uh, let me say, you know, we, we do have an office of highway safety and we have for many years. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they think of the, of the NTSB, they think of aviation uh, because that was really, that's our roots, but we do all the modes, as I mentioned. And so in highways, it's a little bit different. Our mandate's a little bit different because in aviation, it's every civil aviation accident. In highways, it's, you know, really what we choose and what we find out about because we don't find out about all 40,000 crashes that occur on our highways But when we do learn of something, we check into it and see if we want to delve a little bit deeper on safety issues. Certainly when it comes to, you know, whether it's uh, partially partial automation and or, uh, you know, level three, four, if we're getting into the Tempe crash, then, you know, that's something that was on our radar. 
you know, we there are emerging safety issues that we are keeping an eye on. And if we see something, you know, like the electric battery fi- uh, vehicle battery fires, then we're going to look into it. We're going to look for uh, uh, crashes that come our way to see if that provides an opportunity to weigh in on safety. It doesn't make sense to continue to do the same types of crashes all the time because we we have 20 investigators max in that area you know but what we're trying to do is focus on ones we where we think we can make the biggest impact on safety and this is one area but we do uh investigate other crashes on our roads when there was a motor coach crash I was on you know, just a few years ago in uh, um, Pennsylvania. So, you know, we do have others in this area. I mean, Tesla's the one with the market right now. And so we, you know, we wanted to look at, um, you know, different crashes. But to be honest, the Williston one where we started, uh, NHTSA looked at it, closed it out, and moved on. And then we found out about it afterwards. And so we started to look at it and we started to look at the safety issues and issues with operational design domain and driver monitoring and a potential misuse. And so um, that's one area that we thought, you know, we really need to get into. And those are safety deficiencies that we found NHTSA didn't. And that we needed to go in and really look at it, because if this was an issue in Williston, where else was it happening? Uh, Jennifer, for for the audience who might not be familiar with that crash, um, can you explain what you mean by you closed it out and then you learned more information after the fact? Um, we just didn't close not it everyone out. I'm sorry? Yeah, we didn't close it out. NHTSA did. Right. So okay. NHTSA, NHTSA looked into... Uh, this this crash in Williston, where you know a, a Tesla was was being operated on a road uh, in autopilot. It shouldn't have been uh, in operation on autopilot on that road. And there was a um, a truck that crossed in front of it, and it hit the truck and went right underneath. And we saw the same thing in Del Rey, I'm looking at three years later. It was like the same exact crash. But in, the, in 2016, when NHTSA looked at that original crash, they decided it was, you know, driver error and moved on. We look at things holistically, you know, well, how did the system, uh, you know, function? Why was the the operator able to you know uh, why wasn't the operator more engaged? Uh, why did the system allow use of autopilot in an area it wasn't supposed to? And we start looking at um, we start looking at different factors outside of where where NHTSA focused in, and so that's where we we that what led us to the. Uh, us looking into the investigation and opening up one on our on our own, but you know now we have eight. You, you have so, eight. Open? No, we have six. Let's see. We have Williston, Culver City, Mountain View, Fort Lauderdale was a battery fire, West Hollywood battery fire, Delray Beach. We have two open, Saratoga, and then the. Uh, Saratoga, California, and Spring, Texas. So, so I, I'm curious because my whole life I've been fascinated by um, you know, television shows that deconstruct disaster, historical disasters, plane crashes, Three Mile Island, um, train crashes, anything. And and the NTSB always comes up as the like the one government organization that is trusted, that is like really trusted. So the team that investigates maritime crashes, are these all – former ship captains, experts in ship design? Um, are the, is the aviation team former pilots? Are these people who design aircraft? Like yeah. how narrow is the expertise of the focus teams? 
Yeah, I mean, great question. They have significant expertise in marine safety. We do have ship captains, former Coast Guard personnel. Um, I, I think they all in some way have their licenses in marine safety. In, uh, in aviation, it could be everyone from aerospace engineers to flight attendants to, you know, former captains to uh, all of them have, you know, most of them have their pilot's license. Uh, in highways, they have different, um, they have different uh, areas of expertise in their background, whether it's human performance or some other, um, you know, background. In rail, a lot of them worked in Federal Railroad Administration or some came from the Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration and have a background having worked for a pipeline company. So we have people who are experts. Now, I think what a lot of people misunderstand, you know, because I hear this when I go on scene and I do a press interview, the first thing they say is NTSB's lead investigator Jennifer Hammondy, blah, blah, blah. I am not the investigator. I'm not. And a lot of people don't understand that. I'm the spokesman. I, you know, I, I arrive on scene and so our investigators can deal with the investigation, the very important work of getting all the perishable evidence and, and getting through their investigative process I'm dealing with the politicals that show up. The I'm talking to the families to talk to them about our process. Uh, I am talking to the press because I don't want, you know, we want to make sure information is provided to the public, but we also don't want to take time away from our investigators. They have to do what they are there to do. And so once I leave the scene, which is, Three to five, three to four days max. Once I leave the scene, as you know, as a, a member and now chair, I don't have any insight into that investigation because, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, I think it's a, I think it's important for any political appointee to not have contact with that investigative process once you leave the scene, because the cre credibility of that investigation is key. And you never, ever want a situation where what comes out in the end could be seen as in any way political. So it's important that we keep away from that and let the investigators and the professionals do their jobs. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, a big part of it. But, you know, uh, at, at some point they will come to us before the board meeting and present us with a draft product. And it's important that we look at that from a, a point of view of oversight. Do we see anything that might have been missed? I'll read the entire docket. I will look at what they provided. And sometimes there are things I would read in an aviation report that our aviation people would miss, you know, or, you know, rail or, you know, an, one of our board members who has an aviation background might see something that's not in the pipe in a pipeline report because we can look at it with a different set of eyes. Uh, so, uh, you know, and in the end, we can make uh, um, uh, it. Uh, propose amendments to any of those products uh, or, uh, yeah, to any of those products for, you know, in the probable cause or, you know, in recommendations or in the body of the report, of course, um, based on what we see. And we often do have that situation. So in the case of like an aviation maritime or train events, you, you have pilots or captains who've been in command of these vehicles or aircraft in the past. Um, in the case of a uh, crash involving a car, any kind of car, when Ed brought up Tesla, do you then procure your a Tesla for the purposes of, of, of recreating the events? So interestingly, Tesla has provided us with um, the same model vehicle to look at you know, what, what was in operation at the time. I mean, we don't keep that vehicle, <laughs> obviously that goes back, but we do, 
We do look at it and operate it and evaluate it. Um, I think the hardest thing for our investigators to get often is the data. And so that's the toughest uh, to get and why we've been pushing for recorders and getting more information following crashes. What what are you able to retrieve on the data front? Is it um, is it nothing? Is it a little bit? Yeah. What whatever details you can provide, I think would be really interesting. No, we we have been very successful in working with the operators, including Tesla, to get quite a bit of information and data. It just takes time for us to work with the operators so that they do understand what we're using it for, that it's not going to be publicly released, that we're not going to end up in a situation in court where it's going to be released. It's protected and it's protected under our law. In aviation, they know that. They have decades of history with us. In this area, it's newer. And so when we talk to the operators, it's, it's you know, uh, more of a educational process at the beginning to look at. And, and, you know, our investigators might be looking for all types of data. The problem that we have is we're asking for the data. So we don't know what's there on everything unless you, we may not be, know what we're not getting if we don't know to ask for it. So if it's not something that's recorded and given to us like a cockpit, you know, recorder, and that's just an example. I'm not saying that's what we would use in a vehicle, but in that situation, we know what we're getting, you know, whether it's flight data recorder or anything else, we know what we're getting, we know what, uh, what we're downloading, and we know what we're looking for. Right now, there's so much data. On the vehicle front, we don't know what we're not getting because it's not something that's handed to us that we're then downloading from. Sticking on this for a sec, previously, um, Tesla was sort of very publicly removed as a party to an NTSB investigation and and sort of looking at, you know, hearing the things you're talking about and, and looking at some of the recent moves that NHTSA has made. Um, both to like demand automatic reporting of, of crashes involving uh, both partial and full automation uh, in vehicles, um, but now also a very, very comprehensive request for data uh, from Tesla uh, covering a whole bunch of potential uh, uh, things. Like, to me, kind of put all those pieces together and it's easy to kind of come to the conclusion. Again, I'm sure people will say I'm biased about this uh, and that that is what it is, but that that federal regulators and, and investigators don't really seem to to trust Tesla all that much. Is that a, is that a fair conclusion um, or, or, am I, or am I being biased? Which again, it's possible. Yeah, I don't know that I, I can say that. I mean, I think, you know, NHTSA is doing partially what we've asked them to do. Um, and it's a good positive step forward for, for our situation you know, we have a different investigative process than they do. We, our investigative process, when we, no matter what it is, whether it's involving Tesla or not involving Tesla, uh, you know, let's say it was, a, a, you know, a pipeline rupture. We sit down, we, we operate under the party system. And so we will invite parties or technical experts to be to work with us to help provide the factual information that we need to conduct our investigation, but then the analysis doesn't include those parties. That's us, and so we need to be speaking with one voice. And so we don't allow, uh, unless there is prior approval, release of information. That's what occurred, and so. You know, we can't allow that because it gives the public, uh, you know, a misperception on what is an what is currently an active investigation, and we haven't even conducted analysis our, ourselves yet. And so, it's important that we follow our process through. And so, you know, I, there are advantages though to 
companies being part of that process because they're going to get information that we find so that they can make immediate, hopefully, safety changes to their operations. You mentioned that um, you were comparing aviation to, you know, the automotive world and how aviation has been very used to this process. Have you noticed any sort of progress on the automotive front, like maybe more recently or more resistance as you've been working to get, you know, the data that you need to be able to make a proper assessment? I, I think it's been better. Um, for, our investigators have said that, you know, especially in the spring Texas uh, crash, they did have a lot of cooperation from Tesla in that. They did provide a uh, model vehicle and a lot of information that was requested. So there is a much uh, better working relationship. Uh, I visited Tesla before uh, the Mountain View uh, board meeting. And uh, they spoke very, you know, very openly with me about where th- what they were looking at for safety. And so it was a good conversation. But I will say one really good, I think, cooperative uh, relationship where the entity went over and above our expectations was Uber ATG following following Tempe. You know, they took our initial concerns and really just delved deep into safety, hiring outside consultants, really looking at what what do we need to do to do SMS, you know, for our company and where do we need to change? And they really exceeded our expectations. And that was really good to see. Often, you know, after a crash or some other type of event, we've, we see a lot of um, resistance. And unfortunately, not a lot of remorse. And how do we, you know, change our operations? That is not what we saw out of Uber, ATG. I, I want to I want to talk about that just because it was um, such a tragic milestone in the sort of history of autonomous vehicles. But uh, for NTSB, was this was was autonomous vehicle technology at all on the board's radar? Um, or was this the moment when all of a sudden it was like time to bring in experts on that and really that the investigation sort of triggered interest? No, actually, our head of highway safety has a background in this area since maybe the 1990s. So uh, this is his whole life. So uh, no, it was on our ra- on our radar already. This was an area we we're already looking into. And just, you know, uh, it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. This podcast, I mean, I, I, I think, is it four years old now? Five years old? Or five, yeah. I mean, this podcast started as three of us met and talked about uh, – very early on, the I guess uh, lack of clarity in, in kind of the media and general conversations around safety technology in cars, and and an almost total conflation in the in the public uh, discussion between driver assistance and autonomous vehicle technology, and it, it seems that the real conversations about the, the distinguish between the two are very rare, and the public has largely conflated them or confused the two now because of a an deficiencies in clarity going back in the day. How do you hope, do you think that NTSB can contribute to clarifying the two technologies such that the benefits of one don't get dragged down with solving the issues of the other? I mean, I hope so. You know, you're, the last podcast you had, I all I could say, all that stuck with me was the end where he said he had some sort of, was it a sad, moody handle? So what, what? <laughs> so he, he was so great, but he said something that I really loved. He said, we need many people with different kind of voices all saying the same thing. And that's exactly what we need. And I think we have a big role to play and, and I've been saying, I hear a lot about innovation in the news. 
I hear a lot about infrastructure investment and I'm not hearing a lot on safety and we're here to fill that void. I will be as vocal as I can be about it because I do think there is this misperception of partial automation means it can drive itself and I can just sit there. And I will have conversations with state transportation officials and they think that. If they think that, the normal consumer, I don't know how that couldn't be confusing. Yeah. And you, you, you talked a little bit about some of the differences between how NTSB operates and how NHTSA operates. And to me, one of the big distinctions that jumps out is that when you investigate a crash, you're looking as much into the, the pilot or the driver, the human involved as any kind of the mechanical systems or the automation or anything like that. That seems to distinguish you, you know, uh, at NTSB and you, you have that expertise. Like I know, um, you know, Mark Rosekind, uh, he was with NTSB and he was, you know, was a sleep scientist. And so he understood, you know, you have to know how much have people been sleeping prior to a crash? Was that a factor? That's the kind of stuff that NHTSA really, as a defect investigating agency, does not have the experience with. And so I'm wondering, um, is that an area, as partial automation, I mean, and we've had countless guests on the show talk about how this technology is, uh, level two partial automation is going to become much more ubiquitous, and, and it already is. Um is that an area that NHTSA needs to not just respond to maybe your your specific recommendations, but sort of in a very structural way, sort of bring that issue, the behavioral psychology aspects of, of uh, you know, partially automated involved uh, safety um, sort of into their, into their sort of core competency? Or is that possible? Or do we need a new agency? Or how do you think about sort of that, that piece of this? Well, NHTSA does uh, focus a lot on behavioral aspects and the, the users. But here's what I'll say. You know, the NTSB takes a very broad look at safety and crashes we investigate. For us, it's man-machine and the environment in which they're operating. So it's all of it. And so when we look at other agencies, we hope that they're taking the same comprehensive approach. The difference here is we are not the safety regulator. And I think from my aspect, if you're handling everything through a defective investigation, you are looking at everything after the fact. When you know from numerous crashes, there's already an issue. So take proactive action and and our recommendations, which are many classified open, unacceptable action right now, and take some action. But, you know, in the past several years, I was looking at this, you know, I was looking at the, the one quote they had, DOT has emphasized that the right approach to ach achieving safety improvement begins with a focus on removing unnecessary barriers and issuing voluntary guidance rather than regulations that could stifle innovation. Now that goes back to 2018, right? We have a new administration, so they'll have different priorities. But what happened in the last administration, they issued four sets of, you know, guidance that hardly addressed level twos. It was focused on highly automated vehicles and not really a lot of substance there. So, I mean, they definitely need to take a more proactive approach, a more comprehensive approach, and prevent the crashes that could be coming instead of waiting for them occurring and then taking action. Yeah. That's the role of the federal government is to protect the American people. I mean, you know, manufacturers, their job, their whole mission is to, their main mission, sell a vehicle. The federal government is supposed to be in the position of protecting public safety. So for your wish list then for, for, for or anybody for the DOT, you know, at the federal safety regulator level, what do you, what do you want? What is at the top of your list that you would like to see done by, you know, DOT broadly, but specifically NHTSA? ODD limits driver monitoring systems, uh, performance standards for those, driver monitoring, 
improvements to NCAP, the new car assessment program, uh, and looking at how are you going to address the potential misuse of vehicle automation. And then, and then you have to address how automation is being discussed. What does it really do? What does it not do? There is zero comparison of the term autopilot when it comes to a Tesla and autopilot in aviation. And, you know, when you're looking at aviation, you know, the, the, the purpose of autopilot from the very beginning is to reduce workload so that uh, a pilot can focus on other tasks, important tasks in the co- cockpit, and not get fatigued on long-distance flights. That's the purpose of autopilot. But a pilot is trained at a minimum of 1,500 hours and goes through significant training on a regular basis, many times in simulators, and still crashes occur. And they have drug testing. They have a second pilot in in a cockpit who has the same exact controls. There's no talking, you know, up to 10,000 feet. And so there, there are a lot of regulations, safety regulations around autopilot or just, just a flight. So there's no comparison between aviation and the, op- the operations, say, by me in a Tesla. What, what about the yeah. other side of that, which is like people saying that, like, well, why would you regulate autopilot, which is just sort of an enhanced cruise control in some ways, but not cruise control? Like, why, why does cruise control not present the same kinds of, of risks as a level two automation system? Well, I would say that if NHTSA saw, you know, a a possible safety concern with regular cruise control that they needed to address, then they need to address that too. But right now, the industry is driving regulation, none. And so the regulators really need to step in. Here's the other side of it. This is not just, this is not about not wanting automation. You know, there are a lot of safety benefits of automation and even mobility benefits. I mean, there's everything from, you know, you could look at intelligent speed adaptation, or you can look at uh, uh, preventing distraction, fatigue, alcohol and other drug impairment, preventing rear end collisions, lane change collisions, runoff road collisions. There are so many crashes that could be prevented if technology is safely implemented. And I'm not even getting into the mobility benefits. But if you have a situation where it's crash after crash after crash, none of those benefits are going to become reality because the public is not going to trust the automation itself. And I was looking at AAA Foundation did a survey, I think in February of this year, which said 86% of people said they would be afraid to ride in a self-driving vehicle. It, it, is, it seems that that's because level two crashes that are occurring are called self-driving crashes. And they're, and they're not. And they're not. And that that we risk that whatever benefits, whatever safety benefits may come down the pike from autonomous vehicles are at risk because of semi-automated vehicle crashes. I, I want to go back to your wish list um, and, and you had mentioned DMS, uh, you talked about the, you know, clarification on the language around automation, um, operational design domains, which one of those realistically you think has the best chance of not just becoming a recommendation that, that we all kind of want, but actually becoming a part of, uh, safety regulations that would be beyond a voluntary guideline. Well, I never put one recommendation over another, so I'll always answer all of them. And this is why, um, you know, we celebrated uh, in January this year implementation of a technology um, that we have been advocating for for five decades, positive terrain control, five decades going back to 1969, and everyone said, never going to happen, never going to happen. I mean, you know, I look at technology and pipelines that we 
issued a recommendation on in 1970 before the technology ever existed. And they said, we're never going to get it. And it took 40 something, 40, 50 years to get it. And so hopefully that's not the case in these because we're going to have, you know, a serious situation uh, uh, coming in, come in, uh, in the future if, if it takes 50 years for that. Um, but I, I would say I, I'm still hopeful for all of them. Sure. Um, I'm just wondering if based on your conversations that you have today, I mean, what sort of re- what sort of reception are you getting? Um, is there a particular um, interest, awareness and sort of positive positivity around some of these where you think that, you know, while the goal might be to get them all accomplished, that there's an openness to maybe one right now or that the political will is stronger in one area? I think it depends who you ask. I think they'll all give me (laughs) different information, but I think there's political will to do all of them depending on who you ask. So in 2016, following the the crash that killed Josh Brown, the first sort of, you know, uh, autopilot involved crash you investigated, NHTSA, they did their own investigation, which was subsequently, we don't have to get into that. It was subsequently completely debunked and, and very weird thing. But but they also put out in later in 2016, after that crash, an enforcement guidance that said that a, um, you know, that a, an, a safety system that contributes to predictable misuse can be declared defective. And it also says you don't need to wait for a bunch of people to die to, to, to make that kind of declaration. Here we are. So that was that was late 2016. Uh, here we are in 2021. Uh, that hasn't happened. I'm wondering why. Like I, I understand why it would be hard to prove like a line between predictable misuse and and not. And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about that, and and maybe why it hasn't happened, and the sort of technical challenges to to implementing that in a in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I hate to put this on NHTSA, but they'd be the best people to ask because I keep saying the same thing to them. You know, I think, I, you know, if you if you look at Williston, I think one thing that sort of was glossed over when we did the Mountain View board meeting, within that are our findings of Del Rey, which were, again, basically a mirror of what happened in Williston, but Tesla thought it wasn't going to happen after, you know, they had thought they had made some changes. And what we put on uh, uh, on the probable cause of that Delray crash was that NHTSA contributed to the cause of the crash because they failed to take action. So it was the first time that we named NHTSA in the probable cause of one of the crashes, and it just kind of got glossed over. But I thought that was pretty significant because we were looking at Mountain View and that was that was um, that took up most of the conversation. I kept telling people, you really need to look at Del Rey because it's the first time we said further contributing to the crash was the failure of NHTSA to develop a method of verifying uh, manufacturers and corporation of acceptable system safeguards for level two automation capabilities that limit the use of automated vehicle control systems to the conditions for which they were designed, ODD limits. And so it was the first time we said, hey, you contributed to this because you failed to take action. So uh, I saw recently on uh, social media that you um, got a new car. And I did. I, I got a new one. Yeah. And it's a, is it a Subaru Crosstrek? It is a Subaru Crosstrek. I had, I had a Mustang Bullet before that. Oh boy. Uh, so uh, you're a Subaru. I also have a Subaru in the family. Do you, did you get the um, L2 driver assistance package that I, the, the camera based? Uh, the I, yeah. Yes. And do you use it? I have not used it yet because, well, I, I use I don't turn off any of the safety systems, but I also haven't, I'm not going to test them either, uh, unless I go to a rural road in the middle of the county to figure it out. But I I have, I I don't turn off the technology on the vehicle. So the cameras are on and you also, I guess they also have a 
they had told me when I bought it, don't put my HOV, you know, pass. A lot of people put it up there and it blocks the cameras and the, so that's a whole, that's a whole other issue. But yeah, so I have all the safety technology and I'm still working through it. I actually have to be home with the vehicle and driving it to, to, uh, to practice with my, my new tech. But you know, I was impressed. They went through everything the vehicle does and does not do after I purchased it. We spent, they told me I needed four hours and they didn't know what I did for a living, you know. And so I, I went in there and guys sat in the car with me for a long time. Uh, and now I'm supposed to go back. Uh, apparently they gave me a notebook to list my questions. I'm supposed to go back. Of course, I'm going back to get my bike rack, but then it's also a time where I have to ask additional questions about the technology and I'm going to do that. And what do you ask them? Because you're an expert. So I, I can't imagine you have any questions for them, but, but what are you most curious about? Uh, I, I am curious on, on, uh, at what speeds it will not uh, kick in or because I have experienced some situations where I thought it did not. And so, um, you know, I, I'm cut off regularly on I-95 and it has gone off sometimes and hasn't gone off on others, but I'm sure it could be the speed that we're all going at. I don't know, but I do have some questions about it. It is interesting that, um, that, there, the the wide variety of different L2 system behaviors on one side and then user interfaces on top of that and um, and then the differences over time as they as they evolve makes it very difficult for the average consumer whether they're a trained driver or not to distinguish between um, what to expect car to car or same car over time. And that that's a different dimension of driver education that we've never had to wrestle with before. And I'm yeah. not even sure that how, how, how do you think we might resolve that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a real challenge, especially when you're doing over the air software updates and somebody has to wake up to a brand new car. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think it's a real challenge and educating drivers. And, you know, I, I will say that when I, purchased my Mustang, which did not have the same safety features. Um, there wasn't a lot of education on what was in the vehicle. It was a very different experience. And I'm sure that depends on the dealership, but now you have a situation where cars are delivered right to your house. So how are you educated then? So it is an issue. I don't know you know, how we resolve it other than continuing to talk about the need to address it. But so, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I sympathize with that as someone in, in AV education, it's, uh, it's the hardest problem I've ever, uh, mm -hmm. really gone, gone up against. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious also, um, in, in terms of, uh, well, first of all, have you, have you read, uh, Liza Dixon's Atana washing paper? Yes. So, you know, free speed. I love that paper, by the way. <laughs> we all we all do. I know we mention we it like did, every yeah. single episode, but like that's also all of a sudden, you know, gets regulation potentially into an area that that is not just new, but like also, you know, gets into maybe even like constitutional issues of, of free speech, right? Where uh if we have to right, you, you mentioned that that uh you know how how the companies communicate about this stuff affects how people use it and affects the actual safety outcomes. Of those things, what, what are your what are your thoughts on on that, and sort of what is even possible to to regulate in terms of, you know, the the communication, the public communication about these systems, which which as we know is important. Yeah, I mean, consumers have the right to know what a vehicle does and does not do, and it is. I do believe it's the responsibility of manufacturers to be very honest with what their what those vehicles can and cannot do. What are the capabilities? Uh, I think a lot of statements right now are not that. That's a ton of washing, overselling the capabilities of a vehicle. And, you know, I think that really contributes to misuse. If, if the public thinks that partial automation is full automation, then we're talking about it wrong. 
including the manufacturer. And so, I mean, I think it's ethically, morally imperative that manufacturers are honest with the consumers because otherwise they think they're getting something more than they're actually getting. And so when you see TikTok videos of people sleeping, you know, in their vehicles, you know, I I think there are a lot of people quick to point out, well, of course you shouldn't be sleeping in your vehicle. It's just somebody who's, you know, misusing. Well, the system's allowing them to misuse it. And the way it's being talked about, full self-driving capability doesn't exist. Right. So, you know, I, I, I think the way it's being talk, talked about is very irresponsible. And so if, you know, I, I applaud what has been done for innovation, but on the safety side and how you're talking about the technologies, if the manufacturers or any single manufacturer isn't going to talk about it in a way that if you're misrepresenting what that vehicle does, then it is up to the re- regulators to take action. Um, and and speaking of which, I, apparently uh, we're days, weeks away from the public release of uh, what has been a very limited uh, beta test of, of full quote unquote full self driving from Tesla. Uh, this is going to now go to everyone apparently shortly. Although <laughs> deadlines, you never know with that company. Uh, uh, it's going to go to everybody. I'm, I'm wondering sort of, you know, we're at this very interesting moment right before that, that happens. And I'm curious, sort of what are your, what are your thoughts about, about that? And, and what are your hopes and fears about, about that particularly? Well, I mean, I'll, we'll see what happens if the, if the deadline comes, comes about, but, you know, I do, I do have concerns if, if all of a sudden, you know, we are in a full self-driving situation, uh, is it a level two or is it a level five? And who decides that? And then what regulations are then having to be adhered to? Right now, the manufacturers decide what level they're going to be. Right? Mm-hmm. Technically. Yeah. Which, <laughs> so, which is something people don't, don't really appreciate, I think. Yeah. I, I can go out and have, a, you know, a, a vehicle that, Let's say I create one that fully drives itself. Nope, it's a level two. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, it's, it's a dangerous situation. And, you know, I do think it's up to the federal government to come in and, and take action. I hope that happens, but I'm going to be pretty vocal about it and the need to do that because I don't want to see lives lost. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll get you know, a number of tweets that say, oh, the lives saved because of, you know, autopilot or something else, you know, or it's so much safer. I I do think you're comparing apples to oranges. It's not the same. Um, But, and and, you know, and and I don't want to just, I don't want this to be a time where we're just focusing on Tesla because I do think there are other manufacturers that kind of, that are playing on the edges too. I mean, I watched the Super Bowl ads, you know, and (laughs) (laughs) you know, you had Nick Jonas saying, Oh, we have fully self-driving cars with this guy who's kind of kicked, you know, he's kicked back and he's got his hands behind and it it clearly looks like a 19, the inside of a 1970 station wagon. And then you have Edward Scissorhands. You know, who's using Super Cruise in a neighborhood? I'm like, Winona, tell Edward Scissorhands he cannot use Super Super Cruise in a neighborhood. You know? And so, I mean, but it's those kind of images and, you know, voices that people are hearing from that leads to the misuse. You know, and then when you have the the head of a company also saying it, what 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 other... You know, what, what outcomes are we in, anticipating other than what's already happened? And so from NTSB's standpoint, whoever it is, I just, we don't want to see lives lost. But, but that's the issue, right, too, because like if, if there are no consequences for, for like Tesla is, is the pioneer here, right? And, and when you're a leader in things, it's easy to just make that out to be only a positive thing. But, you know, the pro, like if you're ahead of the curve, you're also finding out the pitfalls before everyone else. And isn't to some extent the problem here that if 
if there aren't consequences for you know, uh, poor implementations of this technology that contribute to foreseeable misuse and things like that, that like, and, and, and the company that's doing it not only doesn't have face consequences, but is just runaway successful, at least in terms of public perception, isn't it inevitable that the rest of the industry will, will, will just do what they've done? Like it it isn't to some extent, and I I constantly get frustrated because people say you're so fixated on Tesla, but it's, it's bigger than that, right? Because if, if, if Tesla does it and gets away with it and is, is really successful, everyone else is going to do it too. And then at that scale, we're not talking about one or two crashes anymore, right? I mean, I hope that's not the case. I do think there are really responsible uh, manufacturers, but and I hope they don't, that it's not a situation where everyone will do it. Um, because I think it really, you know, their, their company is on the line you know, their brand is on the line and all of those other companies want to see their innovation successful, their vehicle successful. Um, They don't want to be in a number of uh, articles calling, you know, their claims into question. So, um, you know, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's the opposite. For example, where Uber ATG went the opposite way. You know, I'm hoping others go the same because I think we have the potential. You know, the NTSB has this most wanted list of transportation safety issues. It's, you know, the top 10 issues that would save lives, you know, if we could make changes tomorrow. Uh, And a lot of those issues would come off our list and a lot of lives saved and could be saved through automation. But I I don't want to see lives lost in the meantime. It'll be interesting to see what some of the new entrants too. It's not just legacy automakers, right? That um, yeah. we've got a number of other um, mostly electric only automakers coming out that have their own, you know, ADAS systems. And I could see them maybe trying to position themselves as in opposition to Tesla. And so maybe they'll be more careful, but it remains to be seen there. These are vehicles that will just be coming on the market here in the next like four or five months. Yeah, hopefully. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, Alex, do you want to take us home with the final question here? No, you're done. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I'll just ask, I mean, what is your hope for how we, for how we handle this? What, what, what do you want to see sort of, especially particularly over the next 18 months to, to two years? There have been some indications, as you said, that NHTSA is getting more involved with this. Certainly the amount of data that, that companies have to report about the use of partial automation uh, it looks like has to increase. Um, I'm curious, like, yeah, what do you, do you see positive impacts coming out of that? Have we done enough already? Do we need to do more sort of particularly again over the, over the next couple of years? Well, first of all, I'd like to see NHTSA get a permanent administrator. That would be, uh, hopefully that'll happen at some point soon. Um, second, I would like to see them have a strong safety agenda. I want DOT as a whole to have a strong safety agenda because it's not just NHTSA. You've got potential automation in rail. You certainly have it in aviation. You have automation on trucks. So that's Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. So there's a lot that comes into that. And so as a whole, I would like DOT to have an aggressive safety agenda and work with us to start moving these recommendations forward and to save lives. And, and I'll note that, that you're, in fact, uh, convening a, a series of roundtable discussions, I think, around this exact thing. Uh, before we go, do you want to give yourself a, a quick plug about, about the series? Because I, I definitely think that if you enjoy listening to, to our show, that you'll probably get a lot out of, out of what you're doing there as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a safe system series. Uh, focused on implementing, you know, transitioning from our traditional way of addressing uh, fatalities and serious injuries on our roads to more of a safe system focus and, you know, recognizing that humans make errors. And so really taking a holistic approach to addressing death on our roads. And so, you know, what does that mean? You know, we had one uh, roundtable on what does safe systems mean? Frankly, it's how we conduct our investigations, which is very holistically. How do you address it? 
And then we'll do safe roads and we'll get into safe road users and post-crash care. Those are all the components of a safe system. Uh, but, you know, we have 40,000 people dying on our nation's roads. So we need to double down on what has worked in the past and uh, uh, invest in, uh, and I don't mean that in a funding way, but really invest in new approaches to saving lives. And working with vehicle manufacturers, working with uh, engineers, uh, designers, planners, public health officials and others. So it's a great series. Uh, It continues through the rest of the year. But in addition to that, we're going to have a virtual safety summit with stakeholders in different modes to really get into, you know, how do we how do we improve safety overall and how can we work together? That'll include safety partners, some safety critics too. And um, so it should be a very active several months and years. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, yeah, definitely follow uh, uh, Jennifer on uh, on Twitter. What, what's your, can you give people your, your Twitter account so that people can follow Jennifer you? Jennifer Hammondy. It's very, so easy. Jennifer Hammondy. Jennifer Hammondy. And uh, of course, you know, if you Google NTSB, you'll find not only their website, but their social media accounts as well. Definitely follow them because this is uh, really important and, and frankly, exciting stuff um, because there, are, there really are so many opportunities to, to take safety into uh, to new heights uh, on our roads. So with that, I want to... Uh, Thank uh, NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy for taking the time to, to speak with us. Uh, we, we really, really appreciate it. We're all huge fans, and uh, we are really looking forward to seeing uh, uh, everything that you do as, as the new chair of, uh, of the NTSB. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. And thank you for also being in my ear when I run sometimes. I enjoy listening <laughs> to the podcast while I'm running on a sidewalk. Nice. (laughs) Well, and on that note, uh, we also want to thank our audience for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. 